0: I mentioned Bill Borden before in here, um, just a very curious story um, and I gave a few details of his biography a couple months ago and I just learned some more about him this week and I thought I'd tell you. Bill Borden seemed to have everything. His parents were both descended from British aristocracy, He lived about 100 years ago. Uh, his dad made a, a fortune in real estate in Chicago and then in silver mines in Colorado. In 1908 Bill Borden was 21 years old and he personally was worth a million dollars which in today's equivalency would be about 40 million. So this guy had it all. And according to the the reports I've read, he was a good-looking guy, well-educated. People seemed to like him. Everything a guy could want, um, it seems. And yet, in 1912, at the age of 25, uh, he made headlines by giving it all away. Uh, he divided his fortune roughly in two and gave half of it to charitable re, uh, religious institutions in the United States, and the other half he gave to overseas missions. And he committed the rest of his life to uh, missionary work to the Muslim community. And he started it off by going to Egypt to learn um, Arabic. And it turns out there wasn't much of his life left. He got, uh, what's it called, cerebrospinal meningitis, and he died very soon after he arrived in Cairo. So from the outside looking in, this guy, you know, what a waste. This guy had everything. He threw his money away. He threw his career away, he threw his life away. And what, you know, what possible explanation, what possible good can come of that? And, and the only answer I've got is he's playing by a different set of rules than the, uh, than the world is. He's living by a different system of rewards and penalties. And uh, I look forward to meeting this guy. He seems like kind of a cool character. He's one of those maybe who, uh, actually, this guy was first in, last in, first again, I think. Uh, this is kind of how it looks to me. Money consciousness is sort of an epidemic, not just in our society. Please don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, we 21st century Americans are so bad because we're so greedy and mercenary and materialistic. When was it not that way? Um, can you find a time in history where people weren't greedy and selfish and looking out for themselves? No, there's just not one. Um, this, this story was told 2,000 years ago to people who were intensely conscious about their rewards. Um, a 20-year-old 25-year-old study in psychology today examined not the issue of money or having enough but the issue of money consciousness and the the, the point of the study was that people who are more intensely focused on money on whether or not they have it, without regard to how much you got you, you everyone tends to think that if you had about twice as much as you do have that that would be okay but you know people who have twice as much as you they think the same thing they think that if i had about twice as much as what i've got then i'd be comfortable with that but wherever income level you are, statistically speaking, most Americans think a good bit more, uh, that much more would, would make things just perfect. Well, the more conscious you are of money, of your money, and how much you've got and don't have, the less likely you are to be involved in a satisfactory love relationship, and the more likely you are to be troubled by worry, anxiety, and loneliness. The last one on the list is kind of, seems kind of bizarre to me. It's obvious if you don't think you've got enough money, you're going to be troubled by worry. But loneliness, that seems to come out of left field, and yet the point is that that obsession with what am I getting, with getting my fair share, is going to affect all my other relationships and, and, and poison my other relationships. This is the end of the line. Uh, we, we've studied parables now for three months. This is our 12th parable, and we're going to finish the series on parables. Just so you know what's coming next, got a couple of standalone alone messages. Uh, Ann mentioned, we're going to talk about missions next week. We're gonna pray for Teresa and John and hear a little bit about their trip to Ethiopia. But most of you don't get to go to Ethiopia. Uh, so I'll, I'll give some encouragement on, at least not this year, I'll give some encouragement on how we can be missional here here in Melbourne, here in Palm Bay. And um, that'll be next week. And then it'll be all about the graduates in two weeks. So their fans will be out at both services, bragging on them and stuff like that. And I'm sure I'll do a little, probably more devotional style message. We'll climb every mountain kind of thing. Um, for the graduates, but uh, we'll have, uh, if you're new, um, we'd often do sort of an open mic thing where we uh, allow people to come up and just speak words of blessing to the graduates. We've never had four, Uh, so uh, there may not be much time left for me to speak, and that's okay, Uh, that's two weeks. And then June 8th, it's Jared, Uh, I'll be in Kentucky, and then four weeks from now, it'll be Father's Day. And my mom loaned me a book last week and asked me to do a series on man stuff. and uh, you know these are kind of words for a lifetime. Listen to your mom. And so uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to take a hard look at that book. And, and we might start like a, a short men's series in June and then do uh, the book of Esther uh, the rest of the summer. So that's sort of my plan for, uh, for the next few months. But by now, uh, many of you have learned the tools for how to look at a parable. Look for the surprise. This one's got a definite surprise. What would the audience expect? There's, there's a, some unmet expectations among the characters in this parable today. The audience sitting and listening to Jesus. This is an agricultural community. They would have had their own expectations. Who are the good guys and the bad guys? And really, the, the guy who gets corrected in this story, he's the key player. If you plug yourself into the parable, ask yourself, how am I like this guy? How can I avoid making the mistakes he made? That's how I, I think we can learn for today uh, what, what the Lord would have us take away from here. Who's the audience? We've seen a wide variety of audiences in the parables. This one's another parable for the disciples. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to avoid some of the pitfalls of discipleship. I think the Holy Spirit is teaching us today how to avoid some of the pitfalls of discipleship. Look for the context in order to understand the parable. This is Matthew chapter 20. In the previous chapter, chapter 19, there's a very familiar story. I've done messages on it. It's a whole sermon, but I'm not going to do the whole story now. Jesus meets the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus cuts right through all his religious talk and zeroes in on his number one problem. And the number one problem is right. What? He cared too much about money. Like Jesus tells him in, in uh, Matthew 19:21, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Well, the disciples are watching that, and Peter listens into the, he focuses on the treasure in heaven part. And so Jesus tells this guy, go, give up all you've got, come follow me, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. And Peter's thinking, hey, I've already done that. I've, I did give up everything, my, my fishing business or what, uh, whatever else they gave up. And, and I, here I am following Jesus, so am I going to get that treasure in heaven? And Peter's wanting to know what's in it for me. And so here's what he asks. Uh, this is verse 27. Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? This sounds like a rebuke from Jesus, maybe, but I don't think it is. I think Jesus is affirming Peter and saying, yeah, I know you did that, and it's going to be good for you. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, that the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is the renewal of all things. I think that's the new heaven and new earth. The Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself there. That's his favorite name for himself. Um, I don't think this is a promise for all of us. I think it's a promise for the 12 who are following Jesus. I don't think we're going to all take turns on the 12 thrones. I think that's for them. Um, But the next promise is for us. Verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Right, here's an example of a phrase that I think is kind of a literary device, kind of a hyperbole. I don't think it would be, I don't think you should do the math, multiply whatever you got now by 100. And who, who really wants 100 husbands? I mean, that seems, that's, that's not really advantageous, right? Or 300 kids, or, you know, that doesn't, that, that seems like too much of a good thing, I'm thinking. And so uh, the point I think Jesus is making here is you give up whatever you, whatever you sacrifice for my sake you're not going to show up in heaven feeling like you got a bad deal. Uh, the blessings I pour out on you will overwhelm you and you to the point that uh, um, whatever you gave up for my sake will seem insignificant in comparison. Notice the ending phrase, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. That should sound familiar. That's the end of the parable that Sharon read. And so there's a clear connection between the words that Jesus spoke to Peter and then the parable he, he uses to illustrate. So what was the rich young ruler's problem? That he, did, that he loved money more than God? Or that he just didn't see a good investment uh, uh, when it was in front of him? You know, he, could have had he, he was rich, could have had a hundredfold, right? Um, I don't really think that's the point either. I think the point is his heart was with his money and not with following God, not with serving God. He wanted to look like he was doing great things for God. But, but not really wanted to pay the price. This concept of eternal rewards, You gave away the book The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn a year or two ago. Uh, the idea that you can't take it with you, but you can send some of it on ahead. This is over and over again in Matthew. Oftentimes the gospel writers will take a theme and keep coming back to it. Luke's big on social justice. Luke's, um, Luke's big on like trading places stories. Matthew likes to talk about eternal rewards. All these scriptures, are from the Gospel of Matthew. And I uh, doubt you have time to write them down now. But if you want to do your own study or your own devotional meditation on it, just you know, look these up on the website. And, uh, and I think it would be an appropriate uh, devotional exercise to just you know, read these scriptures and see. You, know, you find one scripture verse. You oftentimes find the cults doing this. Well, they'll find one scripture verse that seems to say something that's kind of all by itself and build kind of a theology based on that. But when you find something over and over again in scriptures the same point repeatedly um, then this is plainly a doctrine that the holy spirit intended to communicate to us this is plainly something that matthew who followed jesus around felt like it was important for us to learn from the life of jesus hebrews 11:6 says it this way without faith it is impossible to please god because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists that seems kind of minimal must believe that he exists but then that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now, do you believe that? I think I think it's easy to say, "Yeah, I believe He exists." Do we really believe that He rewards us if we earnestly seek Him? Now we're up to today's parable. <clears throat> this is from Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read the the next 16 verses and I, and, and try to learn what Matthew was teaching us, what Jesus was teaching them. Verse one: For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in the vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Once again, Jesus takes us into a very common scenario. This was an agricultural community. Vineyards were very common in the ancient Near East. Um, first one I remember from scripture is Noah's. Noah planted a vineyard and uh, got him in a little trouble as I, as I remember, and, uh, or, or his sons. Uh, that's that story. You know, He didn't go down to the store and buy his wine. He had to plant his own vineyard after he got off the ark. And so. Uh, Vineyards are very common in the ancient Near East, and they're often used sort of as a metaphor for God's blessing, like if your vineyards are full, that shows God's bountiful blessing. This um way of recruiting workers, um it's kind of similar to what you might see today in the a place there's a place downtown called the casual labor pickup point, right? where if you if you need a few guys to work for you just for the day, you take your pickup truck and load them up, and then you pay them at the end of the day what they earn for the day, right? Uh, Well, this was a common scenario back then where people would go to a uh, workers, day laborers, agricultural workers, would go to a a central location like the marketplace, and people who needed workers, especially during harvest time, would just go recruit them to come work on the harvest. Uh, This early in the morning, probably think uh, sunrise, so for the purposes of our math, let's figure about 6 a.m., and a denarius. It's not really important to understand this to turn it into, US dollars but the point is it's a day's wage it was commonly understood to be a fair amount of pay for a day it was also believed to be what a family needed to get by uh, and so these are not going to be rich laborers they're you know they're casual farm laborers getting daily work but if they don't they can't make it if they don't get a denarius and that, that's going to be key uh, Matthew th- uh, let's, let's go on to verse 3 about the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. Third hour, that's going to be about 9 a.m. Notice there's a difference here. He doesn't contract with them to pay him a denarius or three-fourths of a denarius, which would have been fair. He just says, I'll pay you whatever is right. And so they trusted him to make good on that promise and to pay him a fair wage. And so they went out and worked without really agreeing ahead of time what, is, what the money's going to be. Verse 5, he went out again about the 6th hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the 11th hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long? So 6th hour is about noon, Ninth hour is about uh, 3 o'clock. Uh, the 11th hour is about 5 o'clock and the day's going to end, the workday is going to end about 6. So it's an hour before quitting time he actually approaches the last set of guys. And they give a pretty lame excuse. Uh, verse 7, no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. At this point, it's starting to look to me like kind of a New Deal kind of a work program here where do you think that he's hiring them because he needs some guys to come work for one hour or is he looking for an opportunity to, give a, to pay guys, uh, to, to spread out some blessing among workers who need the money? I don't know. That might be reading too much into the parable, but that's kind of how it looks to me. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last hired and going on to the first. This, again, would have been very common to the people who were listening to Jesus. Old Testament law required daily pay for farm laborers. And the reason for that is they were usually so impoverished that they needed it today. You know, they didn't have any savings to live off of. Um, Let's finish the story. Verse 9. Well, not quite yet. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came. And each received a denarius. Now here's the key part, the, uh, the pivotal part of the story. So you know, why did the guys who were last hired get paid first? I, I don't have a good explanation for that, except it drives the story. You've got to be able to, to the, the, the first hired guys need to see this in order to respond. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. OK, let's, let's talk about a couple things with that verse. They expected to receive more. I think here's really where the problem started. The guys who'd worked all day are standing in line and they're watching the guys who came later get their full day's pay for just an hour's work or three hours work or six hours work. And then, although they'd made a a contractual arrangement to work for a day for a denarius, they started to have these expectations in their head that they were gonna get a better deal. Now, I've seen lots of hurt result, lots of conflict, lots of broken relationships result from unmet expectations. Sometimes reasonable, I mean, it's, it's not unreasonable that they would expect, actually this guy's just throwing money away, maybe he'll throw some to me. That's not an unreasonable expectation, but it's gonna be unmet and it's gonna leave some bitter disappointment. And so whether reasonable or unreasonable, the caution I would take from this is, I found in my own life, when I place expectations on people, sometimes disappointment can result Whether they've done anything that I could identify as wrong or not They just didn't do it the way I expected them to and sometimes I've caught myself, you know with kind of a bad attitude and and As I took a step back and asked myself the question I had to admit this attitude doesn't come from anything except my expectations not being met not from anything wrong or not from any 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 good reason for me to be in, entitled to this and I think uh Uh, that's sort of a warning for us all so what's the math here you work an hour you get a denarius you work 12 hours you get a denarius it doesn't really add up Uh, verse 11 when they received it their their day's pay they began to grumble against the landowner these men who were hired last worked only one hour they said and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day it makes sense it's not fair Yet the grumbling crosses a line. And that's the part of the parable. This is the part of the parable where Jesus is, I I think would encourage us to put yourself in that place because we can be, if we put ourselves in the position of the guy who looks around and sees, gosh, if they got that treatment, I deserve better. then, uh, Then I think we can learn the message that Jesus is trying to bring us today. Here's the answer, the owner's answer, verse 13. Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. It was a common belief back then that a denarius was what it took for a family to subsist for a day. And so it's it's my opinion that the owner wanted to just bless the later workers and give them enough to, to feed their families, take care of their families. He was fair to all of them. He was generous to many of them. And he was outrageously generous to, to some of them, wasn't he? And it was that outrageous generosity on one hand that led the others to grumble, not any unfairness, just different levels of generosity. Verse 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Of course he does because you probably figured this out by now. The landowner's God. So yeah, he does have the right to do it every once. Or are you envious because I'm generous? Are you envious? I like uh, the literal translation of that is, is your eye evil? And uh, we oftentimes think of the evil eye being some sort of, some sort of hex. Or a, I uh, watched the movie Juno a month or so ago. Uh, I, I love the scene where Juno says, "Your new girlfriend gave me the stink eye in math class," and it cuts to that, and she's like giving her some kind of hexy eye. And we oftentimes think of that as being kind of a way to, to like historically to put a hex on somebody or some kind of voodoo thing. But the evil eye in the ancient Near East meant just one thing: it meant covetousness. It meant looking at your stuff and wishing I had that stuff. And so you'd be more likely to to use the evil eye when you're driving past the rich neighborhood wondering where those people work, you know, that kind of thing, or, or seeing the guy next to you in traffic with a nicer car. That's the evil eye. <clears throat> so who's going to be last? The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Um, I, I think this refers to disciples with a bad attitude. I heard one theory that If you take this parable as referring to church history chronologically, that we're the 11th hour um, workers in the vineyard. And that, you know, we haven't had to hide out in the caves. None of us are martyred for our beliefs. You know, we get an easy life. I can just picture Abraham and Stephen saying, look at these guys. They don't even know anybody who's been stoned. And they're getting the same reward as we're getting. They're not suffering like we had to suffer. that, that's a plausible theory, but it's not really the theory I would hold to. And the reason I say that is because I don't think the parables are there to teach us what's wrong with other people's thinking. I think they're more, they're more helpful if they teach us what's wrong with our thinking. And so, yet I do see a value in, in kind of that approach, in considering myself to be the most blessed and privileged one. I think that helps with my attitude, it helps me to be more thankful. And I try to tell myself that in a lot of areas. We just, we just celebrate our anniversary, and I said plenty of sappy things then about my marriage, so I'll, I'll talk about another feature. How about my career? I teach, I teach history, I teach high school history. And oftentimes you hear teachers talk about, well you know the professional athletes, they make a whole lot more than me for, for a skill that's you know, rarer, but you know, how much more uh, valuable is that? you know just think if I could if I could have learned to hit a curve you know what kind of big bucks I'd, I'd be raking in but uh, there's another way of looking at it and that is you know during the school year I'm talking after school starts and before it ends I get four weeks off that's not even counting summer vacation that's that's in the middle of the school year most 46 year old guys don't get four, four weeks off after they've been working at a place for 20 years and I get four weeks off when school's in and then I get two more months off when school's out. And, and you know what, I don't have to worry about some young rookie taking my job because he's younger and faster than me. In fact, I'm a history teacher. Being older is, is better. Um, I, can, I can remember the last few chapters. I don't even have to read the book. Um, and so I could look at, and, and think about those guys, those professional athletes. They, they can't take any time off. They got to stay in shape all, all during the off season because they show up for camp and there's some rookie just desperate to take his job and work at it. And so, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a relaxation and a comfort and really just an easiness to my job that a whole lot of careers don't have. And so I could, it would be possible to whine about the money. I, I, I hear people doing it, but it makes a whole lot more sense to me to celebrate the, the beneficial features. And there are plenty. Um, and so it's the same job, whether I grumble about it or I celebrate it, but I'm not the same whether I grumble about it or celebrate it. I'm, I'm different when I celebrate it than I am when I grumble about it. Um, my kids are another example of that. You know, my dad had three teenage sons when he went into the ministry, and I had two teenagers when I went into the ministry. And uh, I know about the law of sowing and reaping, but I got a much better deal than my dad did. Um, my, my two teenage kids were much more supportive of my work, where my dad, my dad's teenage sons were not much help to him. Um, in fact, subtracted from his efforts. And so, you know, when I when I went into the ministry, I remember thinking and kind of praying, you know, I'm aware of sowing and reaping. I deserve a lack of support from my kids, even some undermining. And yet, that didn't happen. I you mean, know, you guys, you know, you know my story. You know my kids. Know that uh, you know my kids have been wonderful to me. And uh, and so, uh, the my point is this: telling myself I'm the lucky one. I think is a healthy, spiritual thing to do. It's a, it just makes me a nicer person to be around than when I tell myself, when I look around at this guy and that guy and think, well, how's he got that? You know, what's, what's his deal? I think about churches, You know, we, we have expectations or, or desires you know, for our church to grow. And yet, a, a desperate rush about that doesn't seem appropriate to me. And from reading the literature among ministers, uh, Every size church has its own set of issues. There's a church an hour or two away from us where they're bitterly divided over the question of whether to display the flag in the church, the American flag. And the pastor took it down a month or so ago and he's received death threats from his congregation for his, I guess, lack of patriotism as I think the, the, the point of that. And I was reading that and I think, you know, I guess every church has its issues, but I'm glad I don't have that one. Um, and, uh, you know, there is no flag here, I confess, uh, but we've never had one. I didn't take it down. Uh, um, and so um, my, my point is I, I trust, I've trusted, I prefer to trust that God's got us in the place he wants us and will help us develop and grow at his pace when we're ready. Gosh, what if we'd have had, what if we'd have had that load of kids two months ago squeeze the poor things into those two rooms back there that just you know we'd have done the best we could with them but it wouldn't have been as good as we'd like to do with them and now you know God has given us a better place for them. so I I see God kind of looking out for us that way and so what I found is sometimes the circumstances can be the same but the only thing I can really control is my attitude Um, and and I can if I if I look at it the right way I can find myself to be I find that I'll have an easier time living it with, my, with it myself, and I'll be easier to live with. Uh, Gary Enrig has been my guide through these parables. I've been reading a book by him, and, and the best thing he did for me is help me figure out which parable to do next week, which was very cool. Uh, when i did the psalms i spent an embarrassing amount of time each week deciding which psalm to do next you know there are 150 and so choosing the one to do would take me to the middle of the week and then i have to really get busy so uh, by using enrig's book i was able to just follow his pattern for which which parable to study next but i also have found his articles to be very helpful Um, he identified three dangers that all disciples face once they come to jesus first of all he described what's called a commercial spirit the all I want is my fair share idea, the, the, the mercenary attitude, or like, am I going to get my hundredfold? fold And uh, I read a story this week about Reese Howells. Maybe you re- remember that name. He was a Welsh coal miner who was saved in the revivals about 100 years ago. And then he had a dual career coal miner slash revival preacher. And yet he couldn't give up the coal mining because he had to provide for his family. So this was a typical day for Reese Howells. He'd worked 12 hours in the coal mines, not an easy life, and then he would walk two miles to a neighboring village, and he would lead a Bible study every night. And then after the Bible study, he would walk two miles home, time to go to bed so you can start it all up another day. Um, and that was his life for years. One day he walked to and from Bible study on, on a stormy day, and um, it, there was a downpour all on his way home. And by the time he gets home, he's just drenched. And his dad said this to him. His dad met him, and he said, you know, I wouldn't have walked there and back tonight for 20 pounds. Remember they're Welsh. That's about twenty bucks, a hundred years ago. So the dad says, "I wouldn't have walked there and back tonight for twenty pounds." And Reese Howell's answer to me is just so instructive. He said, "Neither would I." Now I wouldn't do it for twenty pounds either. It's definitely definitely not worth twenty pounds. So why is he doing it? He's doing it because of another system. Uh, the second danger is a competitive spirit. And when I say when I use spirit here, I'm not talking about some demon with the name competitive getting on you. I'm talking about <laughs> you having this attitude. Uh, uh, I don't know. We've, you've heard that stuff, right? Uh, I'm, what I'm talking about is that competitive thing in me. 1 Samuel 18, Saul was very happy to beat the Philistines in battle, right? We're victorious in battle. What steals his joy? They're singing the song, and they're, they're, they're giving David more credit than, than Saul. And so his, his excitement over the victory turns very bitter because now he's not the guy who's the hero of the song David is. And so his competitive, he had every reason to celebrate the victory and be joyous and grateful to God. But because of that competitive spirit in him, he, he, he let his joy turn to bitterness. And then the complaining spirit. Here, I'm going to quote directly from Enrig on this. He says, it's, it was the continual murmuring and complaining of Israel in the wilderness that aroused God's anger. Murmuring is an infectious social disease that robs us and all those around us of joy. So why do you serve the Lord? Is it because of fear? I can definitely remember f- how afraid I was when I was young, you know, getting the big cosmic smackdown. And sometimes I thought it would happen just, you know, in little weekly increments, but uh, uh, like Morris talked about on Wednesday night, but uh, ultimately I was just afraid I was going to be on the wrong side at the end. And so I just, you know, I tried to do my duty out of fear. Or is it duty? You know, we talk about, we use the Bible uses the military metaphor. Some like we're soldiers in the Lord's army. Are we just going to, you know, sir, yes, sir, do our duty because the general commands it? Are you looking for prestige? I I haven't found really a life devoted to Christ to be the easy road to prestige, but uh, I think some, I I guess, have pursued that. Uh, Reward? Well, I mean, uh, we actually teach that here. You know, you can receive eternal reward because of what you do here, because of the way you spend your life. Is that what we're in for? This parable isn't about labor relations and it's not about salvation and it's not about rewards. It's all about attitude. I think that's what the parable is about the ones that Jesus The bad guys in the story are people who did everything right. They made a good deal. They worked hard For 12 hours. They received their pay at the end They started looking around they developed a bad attitude and started grumbling about it. That's, that's the, the behavior that Jesus is correcting in this parable. I'm going to finish with a quote from David Livingston. I'm sure you've heard about him. Uh, famous story in the 19th century. Henry Stanley was an American journalist sent over to Africa to look for this uh, Scottish missionary explorer who was evidently lost, but Stanley found him, and that's when he said, Dr. Livingston, I presume, right? Uh, Livingston... Well, he's the guy who was looking for the source of the Nile, he, he, he was an explorer, he was definitely a missionary, and he was also instrumental in putting a stop to the slave trade in Africa. So his was a life that counted, but it was, his, his life was very hard as well. He ultimately died in Africa, and he did something that's going to sound very creepy to you and me, but uh, was quite common in the 19th century. If, if there was somebody who was really celebrated for his good work, they wouldn't just bury him all at once, they'd bury him in parts because everybody wanted a little piece of him. And so they, they cut his heart out and buried that in Africa, and most of him is buried in Westminster Abbey. So that's the guy. So if you go to London and, and see his grave in Westminster Abbey, that's just most of him. Um, um, and there was this symbolic idea that you know his heart was in Africa because that's where he, you know, he spent his career. But here's what he had to say about serving the Lord. He said that on December fourth, eighteen fifty-seven, I personally have never ceased to rejoice that God has entrusted me with His service. People talk a lot about the sacrifice involved in devoting my life to Africa, but can this be called a sacrifice at all if we give back to God a little of what we owe Him? Now, I'm not sure, but I think that 150 years ago, David Livingston invented that thing where you put quotes around your words like that because. Actually, I can't, I can't explain why that is. I think the whole thing is a quote. Uh, so I'm not sure why there's quotes within that. Um, he goes on to say this, say this, and we owe him so much that we shall never be able to pay off our debt. Can that be called sacrifice, which gives us the deepest satisfaction, which develops our best powers, and gives us the greatest hopes and expectations? Away with this word. It is anything but a sacrifice. Rather call it a privilege. Now, I think those are wise words. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of, of, of saying yes to your call. Uh, Lord, I thank you on behalf of this congregation um, for the privilege of saying yes to what you've called us to. And Lord, in a corporate way, on behalf of, the, of this church and of this congregation, we want to say to you that we're grateful to you for what you've done for us. Lord help us to approach the uh, the assignments you've given us with joy. Lord help us to avoid the dangers of being commercial or competitive or complaining. Lord help us to receive your blessings as grateful children. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.